0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more.
1: Hello, I'm Marilla Martin-Cook.
2: I'm Aaron Kronikin.
3: I'm Alvin Huff Jr., the music director of Once on This Island, and you're listening to Why I'll Never Make It.
4: Podcasts are always great because you just get to talk and and you just and you never know where the stories are gonna take you or where it's gonna take you to what you find out about it. You know, that's what's so cool about it. When you said to me, hey, Joey, you wanna do this? I'm like, Patrick, of course.
5: Welcome to the last episode of 2018. Boy, it has been quite a year, but you know, this not only marks the end of the year, but this also marks one year since we started the podcast. December 28th was our very first episode with Matt Sombrano, and it's been a lot of episodes, (laughs) bonus episodes, and a lot of adventures ever since then, and I thank you so much for joining me on the journey and for being here for this final retrospective episode of the year. You know, a lot of ups and downs have happened this year um, with the podcast. Uh, certainly wonderful guests is probably the, the number one thing. And having so many of our, of our friends come on and talk about their experiences and joys and struggles when it comes to theater, when it comes to entertainment, when it comes to the various uh, avenues of the arts that they've explored and and struggled with, but also made great strides and successes with. But with the podcast itself, we've also um, experienced some losses. And for the first season, it was me and Dewey Cadell, and it was a, a joyous and fun time that we both had. And then, then we obviously took a break for the summer, both he and I were doing shows, and then coming back to season two, there was, you know, Dewey was hoping that he could come back, but his, um, his obligations, I mean, he was doing shows, but also just his own obligations with life and work kept him from being a part of season two. And hopefully he'll get to come back here and there, uh, maybe full-time, maybe part-time, special guest appearances here and there. So hopefully Duo will get to come back and join the podcast once again. But for now, I'm wishing him all the best and knowing that he is out there making it. And as far as some of the good things that have happened with the podcast, I've added some bonus episodes and other interviews to the podcast. First off was the Tony Awards bonus episodes. We did about five of those in honor of the Tony Awards season uh, in May and June of last year, and those were a lot of fun. We will definitely be doing those again in 2019. And then a couple of months ago, at the beginning of season two, I added the Spotlight series, and that has been something that I've thoroughly enjoyed doing, giving a different look at the arts and what people and organizations are doing to make the lives of others better and more engaging. So I can't wait to see what 2019 will bring as I talk to more people who are making a difference in the arts and beyond. Now, one thing that you may not be aware of is that Why I'll Never Make It was not the original name of the podcast. Whenever Dewey and I first sat down together and we were thinking about what this podcast would be and what we were going to talk about, my initial thought of the name was a play on the word podcast. And so I thought of podcast and crew, since those were the people that we were going to be talking to and about in the podcast. And... Plus, I'm just a a sucker for play on words. And so I thought of podcast and crew. And so we recorded an episode and let our friends hear it and got their feedback as far as what they liked and didn't like. And, you know, basically seeing if we were heading in the right direction with the podcast. And we had all the segments that we currently have, Why I'll Never Make It, Why I'm Still Here. And the segment that Dewey and I did together, Is It Just Me?, where we would talk about something that's kind of confusing us or ticking us off. And it was the segment While Never Make It that everyone seemed to really gravitate toward and they loved that idea of what is it that's holding us back? What is it that we're struggling with that's keeping us from making it? And so the While Never Make It name was born and that became basically the impetus and the theme around which we geared the podcast. But as you can imagine, with a name like Why I'll Never Make It, some people see it as a very negative connotation. And I understand where they're coming from. I mean, no one really wants to talk about why why I'll never make it. It's all about living the dream and pursuing goals. And, you know, one day you'll you'll get to Broadway. One day you'll be on that television show. One day you'll direct that, uh, you know, that wonderful, huge blockbuster production. and And so talking about why I'll never make it is not a subject that most people want to talk about. And we brought on Jeff Thompson, who is a composer, and he actually started to question exactly what we meant by why I'll never make it. We talk about making it. What yeah.
6: is this it that we're making? Is it, it an off-Broadway show? It. Yeah. Is it a Broadway show? Is it a clown underneath the sewers of Derry, Maine?
5: Wow, oh. that, that, that's something. You know, that a is... little
6: Stephen King reference there.
5: Okay. I think it's going to be very subjective, depending on, on each person, of sure. what their it is but the reason why we came up with why I'll never make it is because for each of us and for those listening they each have their their criteria for what is or isn't happening in their career that's that's making it. The grass is always greener. Yeah I yeah. grew up in
6: the woods in southern Missouri. Getting to New York is making it.
5: And so while the definition of making it is different for every person, there's one common thread that really is I think the dividing line between making it or not making it. Because sure, I guess our our resumes are one indication of it. But I think the, the core of it is the mindset. And in episode 18, Mike Wartella talks about how easy it is to lose that mindset.
7: And I've also seen like in turn what really breaks my heart a lot because I have felt this emotion so many times, but I have never given into it is I've watched a lot of my friends too in that place we're talking about where you kind of struggle and you're like, I'll just keep going for a little while. But they've kind of mentally given up. They've Mm. sort of like emotionally decided that they're not good enough, they're not going to make it. That's the other sick game that we play in our heads is that we're not good enough to do it because the validation hasn't shown up. I was convinced, the year before I booked Rent off-Broadway, even though it felt more like a Broadway show, but the year before I booked that, I was convinced that I just wasn't good enough to do it. I was like, I'm not a good enough singer. I'm not a good enough actor. There's a little Broadway club and I'm not in it for a reason. And I actually, I always tell the story. I don't know if he's ever heard this before, but Adam Chandler Barrett and I, who are now buddies, didn't know each other before Rent. And I was waiting tables one day at Vinyl. And I looked out the window at a street fair and he's out there with Jen Damiano and they're like, you know, yucking it up. And I'm just looking at him like, oh broadway guy you know like he thinks he's so cool like what a ju- i bet he's a jerk you know like right. i was really of course, of course. you want place. them to be
5: assholes oh yeah because then it's like well uh, well, well then know. of course he had to do that <laughs> exactly. in order to make it i don't i'm better than exactly. that exactly yeah
7: and then a year later i get the show and we're like best friends and <laughs> you know and i realize like oh i'm i wasn't ever not good enough to do this i just was a standing in my own way and B like life puts those obstacles up for a while yeah. that's just how it goes
5: no and and you speak to something that i've that i've spoken about before on the <laughs> podcast and that is jealousy looking at others and, and that comparison yes and it is it, it it really is deadly and it's something that that i i catch in myself all the time sure and, and i do my darndest to, yeah. to not give into it but We're it all is all human it, you know? yeah it is just so hard yeah. to to look at, at Especially friends, yeah. the, who 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 you know really well, that's true. and and you also love, and yeah. you and you support them. But it's like, you know, like well, they're getting it, like, and someone's got to get in these shit. Why am I not? So I it's it's really tough. There's actually
7: a mental space that exists that I think really helps, and that's sort of belief and trust in the universe, and belief and trust in yourself and your own. Passion the reason you came here in the first place And I think the more we hold on to that and the more we like tap into that Mm -hmm. and stop letting the city and the business kind of Get in our heads and get us down the more successful. We're gonna be
5: because to a certain extent We have very little control over our career. Yes, we can audition. Yes, we can network Yes We can meet the right people and be in the right place at the right time But even after that it comes down to luck it comes down to things that are beyond our control that go into why we get jobs or why we don't. And Scott Wojcik of Wojcik & See Casting talks about this very topic. It's interesting, you know, I, I think control as just a topic um, is, is an important thing to talk about in the industry, just in terms of what you have control over in the audition process and, and who you're working for and then you work for yourself and kind of balancing all that. As an actor, I thought I was talented and just wasn't getting a break. So I didn't feel like I had a lot of control and I thought that I was, Good enough at performing and smart enough to be more successful than I was feeling at that time. So when I jumped over into casting, there was an initial sense of more control because I knew what my job was and I knew what I was supposed to be doing. But you know, as the years go on, you know, controls a a, a, an interesting topic because while we control what our office does, um, we have no control over who the final choices are. And so it's easy to see how any of us could be discouraged in this business including Stephen Wallow, who starred in the Showtime series Nurse Jackie. I still have these really tough times. Like these last few years have been, career-wise, have been
0: really challenging. And I stop using the word... Hard or difficult or terrible or sucky or any of those things. I try to force myself to use language that I don't hear myself saying, so I don't stay in that place. That's it. Yeah. Um, I and think that that's is smart. a tough thing that's for smart. all of
5: us to do. We all know that. Yeah. Th- um, yeah. That's, that goes back to that motivation I was talking about, Be- right? Because other people aren't going to give it to us. We have to. Right. We have to find that within ourselves. And I think the words that we use, the attitudes that we have, there's are, a lot of power to that. <laughs> it's essential. And we to talk keep ourselves
0: right. And you can talk yourself into believing. I mean, to mm-hmm. staying in that place. And I am an expert at that. I'm an expert at going to a really dark place. Um, I'll let you read an email I just sent to my manager about an hour ago,
7: <laughs> actually. So I'm we'll going to sit that and talk now. Yeah, we'll, post yeah, that
0: yeah, we'll post that <laughs> online with,
5: with names and links to right, everyone involved. I'll just involved. put
0: my email address and my password so people can
5: just
3: check my email <laughs> whenever that's they best. want. Honestly, that's they're going to love that. Yeah, they're they will. It's that. very entertaining. <laughs>
5: Nevertheless, we keep going. We are still here, despite all of the disappointments, despite all the things that get in our way, both mentally as as well as in the audition room or in shows that we do, all the things that get in our way of making it. And one of the biggest reasons why I am still here myself is auditions. Now auditions are certainly fraught with <laughs> with with a lot of uh, I don't know struggle with a lot of nervousness with with a lot of unknown. Like yes, you can prepare as much as you can before you get into the audition room, but once you're in there anything can happen. They can ask for anything you, you and maybe all that preparation goes kaput because you don't hit the right note because you you know, you you mess up a line or something. So really, anything can happen in the audition room, including the wonderful. And that is something that director Jessica Holt specifically talked about in episode 10.
8: What
9: do I see good and bad? Actually, I think what I'm looking for, which is also the the good thing that I see, is when people come in and they are fully and completely themselves, that they have their own internal compass and they have their own center and that they know that what they're offering is completely individually their own. And that is actually you can feel it when somebody comes in and they've got yeah. their own anchor and they they know that what they're bringing is their own spin on it. And that's exciting to me because I have an idea about who I think this character might be and I am excited to spark with another creative artist's idea of who th- they think this character might be and if we can have a conversation about it and meet in the middle. That's so cool. And so when I see somebody come in and they make a strong offer, and you you know you hear that all the time, make a bold, strong offer. But it's really true. When somebody comes in and they've just made some really clear, strong choices about who they think this person is, and they've done it within the given circumstances of the text, you know, that's also what I want to see is that they've done some text work <laughs> and they have read the play and have made really integrated and rigorous choices around who that person is. You know, I, I'll never forget. I had an audition last year that was really memorable. And I, I cast this actor. I just thought she she came in and she owned it. And she made the room hers. And she was unapologetic about it. And it was one of the most delightful five minutes of my, you know, experience in an audition room ever. And oh, wow. yeah, And so it's, it's incredibly memorable for somebody to come in and just say, this part is mine and to be unapologetic about it. And she's not necessarily the type, you know, I'm going to put that like in those apostrophes, like she's not the type, but she came in and she said in her aura, in her energy, this, this part is mine. And I and the casting director were like, that part is hers, you know? And it was because of the choices she made that were surprising and delighted us and made us lean in. And I would say coming in unapologetically yourself is what I'm looking to see from artists.
5: Because the one thing that we have that no one else has is ourselves. And that goes for the performing arts, that goes for the business world, that goes for in our life in general, whether we're going on a date or whether we're with family or whatever the situation is, ourselves is the only thing that is uniquely powerful within us that we can bring to the work that we do. And when we do that, when we are fully ourselves, as Jessica talked about, then you probably have a better chance of being cast as as she did with the girl that came in and auditioned for her. And then once we're cast, then we really get to dive into a role, dive into a show and really experience the excitement that comes with being in a show, just like Casey Aaron Clark did in the Les Mis tour.
9: I always feel that little jilt of energy before I go on stage, no matter how prepared I am, no matter how many times I've done the show that I'm doing. I mean, I, I was on the Les Mis tour for 18 months and visited the show 652 times. So uh, was I nervous by the 650th show? Not necessarily, but I did still feel that that little excitement, that little tingle, you know, you hear the magic notes, or you hear a a particular part of the show that you love, and, and you're always striving to bring that excitement on stage with you, and let it be part of the flow and part of the energy, as opposed to being like, oh, God,
4: this is gonna kill me.
5: And I try to bring that same excitement, that same tingle that she talks about into the podcast, because, yes, I'm an actor first, a singer first, and that's what I love to do, being on stage. But... Being behind the mic and getting a chance to talk to you is also exciting, and bringing on guests that get to share their story is one of the things that I most look forward to each and every week, and it all began December 28th, 2017. So now the time has come to look back at that very first episode. Matt Zambrano was a friend that b- both Dewey and I had worked with, and he was so gracious in coming on the show and being basically the guinea pig as we began this whole podcasting process. And we had originally, Dewey and I, we had originally done, as I mentioned, we had done an episode that we let friends hear. Now, what we did for that, it didn't include an interview, it was just those segments that I had mentioned, and so we basically scrapped that and started a whole new episode. We, we did the Why I'll Never Make It, Why I'm Still Here, Is It Just Me? We did all those segments and then we brought on our very first guest. All right, well, We are back, and our very first interview of the podcast. Mm. Matt Zambrano.
10: Hello. Yes, hello. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much
5: for joining us. First
10: time listener, longtime fan. (laughs) Thank Uh, you for
5: coming out to our, our studio. In, oh yeah uh, woodside
10: i appreciate you decorating the studio with uh, the holiday fair there's a if i may paint the picture for the audience oh, there's please a, oh, please a lovely paint, green paint holiday tree decorated with candy canes there's a uh, stockings hung by the chimney with care and fresh hot cookies so it's a real uh, welcoming place thank you for oh yeah yeah
5: chewy yeah. N- not chewy gooey chocolate chip cookies is what i meant there's two batches the the first one uh, as always went poorly. Ah, yeah. Mm. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's a little bit more on the softer side. And all of the monster versions actually have been eaten by myself and my wife, who's in the other room.
10: That's quite all right. You know, I appreciate you putting forward the best cookie. (laughs) Yeah.
5: Yeah. <laughs> I had actually forgotten about those cookies until I was putting together this episode and he, <laughs> listening to him talk about those cookies. Yes, some were burnt, some were magnificent, and, it, <laughs> and everything in between. But eventually we got down to, uh, you know, more important matters than cookies. And Matt Zembrano shared about his time in moving from Denver to New York City.
10: I think the biggest difference in moving to New York from Denver, which Denver has also changed a lot since they legalized marijuana, is that uh, I wasn't prepared for just how much of a pain in the ass the day-to-day living is in New York. I knew it would be a hard hustle to get my name out there, to get known in this industry, to meet the industry professionals, as you talked about earlier in the podcast, how to network with those people, know who's who, who the game changers are. I knew that was going to be a challenge, but... What I didn't anticipate was just how hard it is to go grocery shopping, how much you really can't rely on public transportation to get yeah. you where you need to be on well, time. Well, especially
5: now, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, and it's gotten worse over the last couple of years.
10: Absolutely. So, so that that I think was the biggest culture shock for me. I knew it would be there, moving to a bigger city, to maybe the biggest city, um, but I just uh, I didn't anticipate that. And I've often, you know, I've often thought about if I came here in New York when I was younger, if I moved out here when I was. 18 or 21 when I first graduated college, would I have been more successful now? You know, would I have, should I have come out here when I was younger, when I was that age? And I don't know what the answer to that is, but I do know that coming out here when I did, I was a lot older. Um, lot, a, a lot, lot older. older. I mean, I'm <laughs> eons. But I'm also. Yeah, well, that's why we put you in the rocking chair. Yeah, thank you very much. I Appreciate <laughs> it. It does feel good on my back. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also a whole lot fucking smarter than I used to be. And I have a much better sense of who I am as an artist. Yeah. You know, which I think is was important to come out here and know uh, the kind of work I want to do, the kind of people I want to be working with, and the kind of projects I want to be working on.
5: And in much the same vein, that first interview, that first episode, let myself and Dewey know that we... We're on the right track, that this is something that we wanted to work on as well. And after several episodes throughout the winter and spring of 2018, came two of our biggest guests that we had on the podcast. First was Jelani Aladdin from Disney's Frozen, currently starring in that show on Broadway, and... Joey Fatone of NSYNC, who is a good friend of mine. We did a show years back in Orlando, and he agreed to come on the podcast as well. Both of them talked about their education and basically how schooling propelled them into the arts. I had applied to this program called A Better Chance, and um, I went off to Connecticut to interview and you came to Connecticut. So you lived in a house um, that this board runs, and a resident directors live in the house, and you have two boys in each grade from inner city, from like the inner city, from like, okay. the Bronx or like Queens, uh, Brooklyn in my case. Um, and then you go to the school for four years, and it's a public high school, one of the best public high schools in Connecticut. Um, and so, and you're also required to do an after school activity. And then the fall came around my sophomore year of high school and it was like, you have to do an after school activity and everyone was doing football and I was like, I don't want to do football. So I auditioned for the freshman sophomore musical, Susical, and then I got the role of the cat in the hat and the rest is history. So a
4: little bit part.
5: <laughs> yeah, just um, a little part. <laughs>
4: yeah. When I was in eighth grade, I moved to Orlando, Florida from New York city. Place called Walker middle school. And I wanted, there was, in, in my Catholic school in New York city, there was never a choir or a drama or any of that kind of stuff. So there was actually a teacher that had a drama class after school that did all this stuff and did like little plays and we did all this other kind of thing. So I was like, you know, I don't want to be a part of that. I always want to do something. So I became involved in it. And the crazy thing about it was, is there was a, a high school production, uh, I can't remember the rate it was called rainbows or colors. or I can't remember exactly what it was. And it was a person that was represented in each color whatever. So there was a play that the high school was doing that they were coming to Walker middle school to do this play. And they asked the drama kids that were the drama students, obviously, to kind of learn and help set up with them and kind of shadow them and just watch them and do stuff. That is the first time I ever met Wayne Brady.
5: But whether it's being cast in the musical susicle like Jelani was, or meeting someone like Wayne Brady, who is still a good friend of Joey's to this day, some of our guests have told very eclectic stories, and I can think of no better guest to represent this than Grace McLean. She had just come off of The Great Comet and agreed to be on our show and shared some wonderful stories of of her experiences both on stage and off stage, as well as some ideas that she has for an album. This
1: is not a real thing, but it's a thing that my fiance and I like to say is we have a band called Meat Balloon
5: that could be that
1: could be inspired by the image of a a whale carcass deteriorating on a beach okay balloon wow so earthy i I feel like (laughs) i feel like the music that comes out of a whale
6: carcass uh expanding on a beach a dead whale carcass like that that music it's funky so it's very descriptive of what the music will eventually be. Yeah. Well,
1: I gotta yeah. tell you, our ideas for the music are like we've got a song that's just endings. Like it's just like ba ba da bow That's the whole song. We've got another song that's just tuning <laughs> and maybe banter. That's the song. Uh, so where, where,
5: where do the ideas for these songs come from? Is it just random stream of consciousness?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, our first album is called Sophomore Effort.
5: And speaking of other titles, we had a writing and performing team, Jeff Rossick and Glasgow Lyman, who had just written a new musical called We Need This Musical to Keep Us from Killing Ourselves, The Musical. Now, as that darkly comedic title indicates, it deals with a rather heavy subject, which is suicide. And one of the actors is actually a licensed therapist. And so if I have a therapist on the show, then, of course, I'm going to take the time to have my own therapy session.
10: And so this is
5: interesting having a therapist on the program, you know, let's have a little mini session right now. Yeah. So, for actors, now. Yes, yes, um, so for us actors, yes, yes, please. So for us actors and also you being one yourself coming from a theater background, what have you found both in being, you know, listening to us actors as well as kind of being on stage? What have you found is like the way to keep going, the mindset for us to kind of make it in this business, even if we don't have the work, but just make it mentally in our head to keep going.
6: Well, I'll talk from a therapeutic perspective. And there's a lot of like different terms that people would use for this, but I'm going to use the term authentic indifference. And we talk a lot about that in the therapy world in terms of uh, achieving goals, whether it's for people that I'm working with, like being able to do something they hadn't been able to do with or without pain, or whether it be uh, going into an audition, you want to be able to go into it with, for, for your mental health sake, you want to be able to go into it with a certain amount of authentic indifference, which means you don't want to have too much weight put into it because otherwise you're going to ride the roller coaster you're going to go up you're going to go down you're going to go up you're going to go down and it'll just completely tire you out in a lot of ways you want to go into each audition or whatever it is i i mean i'm a therapist in la so i have a lot of actors as my clients of course but you want because we need help (laughs) (laughs) i understand we all need help trust me every group of professions needs different kind of help but you know you just Uh, expecting putting any sort of stock into anything that comes and of course this comes just from like you guys know this because you've been auditioning for so long you know like audition forget about it be done just totally be done don't even really think about it anymore um those kinds of things they're hard to develop and you develop them over time naturally but it's something you want to be conscious of is being authentically indifferent to the outcome whether you get it or not because otherwise you're just going to be exhausted and you'll be anxious and then depressed and then anxious and then depressed and then anxious and then depressed and that's not sustainable long term so with actors it's a lot about It's a lot about actually curtailing enthusiasm, because actors tend to have a lot of enthusiasm, which is a great thing, but knowing where to place it, not necessarily in the the highs and lows of the audition as so much as like where you're at in your more broadly in your life, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's No, no, it
5: absolutely makes sense. And that's something that I've had to come to terms with in relation to Yes, I want to be a performer. Yes, this is what I want my career to be. But I also need to have a life. And what is it that's going to make me happy and fulfilled? Exactly. And whether it's doing this podcast, which is kind of a side venture to me, or, you know, like like for you, Jeff, you got into writing Mm. as well as performing. So it's finding that other avenue to kind of have an outlet. And something that we find a purpose and enjoyment in and also living your life is what often informs your art i mean right yeah you know, and having not... the experiences that you do in between the auditions
2: and doing the work and all that it's like that's gonna make you a better artist i mean in theater school there's all this this
6: intensity about like you know live your craft and if you can do anything else do it because acting is like the hardest thing in the world and you've just got to live and breathe that to the like uh, you know to yeah. the nth percentile which I love that passion and enthusiasm, but that's like terrible mental health advice. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. no matter yeah. what field and if you're in, if you put all your eggs in one basket, that's dangerous. Like that's not mentally healthy. So I love that enthusiasm for theater school, but that's terrible advice to tell people if you want them to be happy and healthy. <laughs> so what is the Glasgow Lyman advice? Um, that's interesting because as a therapist, I'm not normally doling out personal advice. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> you know? from
5: and, and, and this is something I've been in therapy before. And yeah. there are those that more just kind of ask questions and let yeah, you yeah. kind of figure your way out, And then there are those that are a bit more directive. directive. Right. And so if you're going to be directive, if you see someone kind of going yeah. d- down this path that isn't the best for them, how do you kind of help steer them back onto a better path?
6: It's because I have a very special, like specific niche in the therapy that I do. I tend to work with people, as I said, chronic pain, but it tends to be uh, coexisting with a with high level of anxiety. Um, And so I work with a lot of just, you know, varieties of anxiety. And because of that, and this is going to sound overly simple, I spend a lot of time just encouraging people to find ways to have fun because Mm. the people that I work with tend to work really, really hard and push themselves very, very hard and forget that frivolity is actually very good for your brain. So doing something that doesn't have a purpose, that's just fun, that's just silly, that's just fun, frivolous, as I said, like that's really healthy for your brain. So that's what I end up telling people a lot because I'll ask people like, what have you done for fun? And they won't be able to think of anything. They'll be like, well, I worked really hard today. It's like, that's good. That's good, but that's not good for your brain. (laughs) So have fun. That's my advice. It sounds overly simple, but it's really important.
5: And I had a lot of fun with the Tony Awards bonus episodes. This is where I got to sit down with friends of mine and talk to them about their Tony-nominated shows that they were in. And two of them, Alvin Huff from Once on this Island, which won Best Revival, and Jeff Tice from The Band's Visit, which won Best Musical, they sat down with me and talked about what it's like to be with these beautiful shows, with the beautiful scores, and listen to them for the first time. I
3: get one show a week to sit in the audience and take notes. But I couldn't do that until after we had opened and, right. you know, smoothed out all the kinks. And people, you know, friends of mine would come and say, oh, it sounds so good in the house. Like, what did, I'm like, I, I don't know, I haven't heard it yet. <laughs> I'm, up, I'm up, I have my own mix in my earphones and I listen to, to that. And I'm like, I, I can't wait to get out in the house. And when the first time I took notes, I almost couldn't write for the first, I don't know, 10, 20 minutes. I'm yeah. like, this sounds so amazing. Mm-hmm. It's um, people often come and say, "Are you sure there are only four guys up there playing? Are you sure it's only four guys in that band?" It's because we're all doing a lot, actually. It, it, because of what? What are the four instruments? Um, exactly. Piano, bass, drums, guitar. That's all we have. The bassist okay. is is playing, you know, one electric, you know, bass for the entire show. Right. The Guitarist has he has four different guitars. The percussion kit is something that I'm no drummer. I can't, you know, fully explain. But I think anyone with, you know, a pair of eyes yeah. can just look at what he has set up and realize. This is unusual. Yeah. This is not, I mean, he it's so unique. I think he's got four or five cowbells. He's got a Jun Jun. He's got, he has to have a snare drum for certain parts. He's, I, it's yeah. so unique. And everything is set up within like a millimeter of, if and he's crammed in this tiny little space, I mean, he makes it work. Right, it right. makes sense.
5: But, it, but, mean, but the, the, but the quarters its, are tight. That's its own choreography for the drummer. <clears throat> that's true. Just, just to know, okay, now I need to reach over to the left and hit this, to the right and hit in front. Yeah, just. And to I would say for yeah. me,
3: I'm conducting. I'm playing keyboard. I'm playing percussion myself at oh, times. Oh, 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 that's right. Okay. I've got. I'm playing a like a Spanish gourd. There's is a a moment in the show that's the entire song is just a percussion solo and. He's like, Alva, can you give me something? I can like, lay down a beat and you can like, play, play around me. It's, yeah. it's so much fun. I'm playing some percussion. It's a workout. It's a great show. It's 90 minutes. There's which, no intermission. Yeah, which, which is so really nice as the an audience member. You just oh?
5: come, watch it straight through, and then, and then you're done. So it's certainly, it's certainly wonderful. We were downtown rehearsing. Uh, we were rehearsing at Manhattan
2: Theater Club for the Atlantic production. And uh, Andrea, the music director, said, I want you to go. We were in just one of those little rooms. And she said, I want you to go sit on the other side of the room and just you know, take notes, you know, Hmm. because she was playing at the piano, and um, so I went to the other side of the room, and we ran the whole show. This was towards the end of the rehearsal process, and um, just like so many of my friends have said, like, it sneaks up on you, and at the end, you are so emotionally affected by it, and you can't describe describe why. And so at, at the end of the run, Andrea and I would get together and she would say, So what notes do you have? And I would say, Well, about halfway through I just stopped taking notes because I was just <laughs> completely mesmerized hmm. and, you know, I would, you know, be emotionally affected and I would just say, you know what? Like this is there's something really special about this and I can't put my finger on it. And still, I really can't. It's it just affects people and because of that human level. I mean, it's it's a story that We may not be familiar with in terms of um, any kind of political goings on or or dealings in in that part of the world, but just sort of the theme of like we're all brothers um, and we're all in this world together. We're all in this world together and we should all take care of each other if there's somebody in need. Like you should do what you know, know, offer whatever you have to to help them out.
5: Whenever I came up with the idea for the Spotlight Series, that was definitely what I had in mind, of showcasing people who were helping others out, who were using the arts in a beneficial way in the lives of other people. And the two organizations so far in season two that I've focused on, one was Only Make Believe, which brings in interactive theater into hospitals and care facilities with children who were battling illnesses and other diseases. And then the second organization was the New York Youth Symphony, who also brings in youth ages 12 to 22 and puts them in in an orchestra, uh, musical theater, composition writing, uh, a jazz ensemble. There's also chamber music. There's so many different avenues that the New York Youth Symphony uses in order to place children who have auditioned and show talent in whatever field, whatever program that they're put into. And the Spotlight series started off with Dina Hammerstein, who is the founder of Only Make Believe. And her husband is the late James Hammerstein, who is the son of the iconic lyricist Oscar Hammerstein. And she told me what exactly prompted her To start Only Make Believe, where did this idea come from?
11: When I was a volunteer, there was a program I funded to take the children to the theater. And on a Wednesday matinee, midtown, with a busload of sort of um, heavily challenged wheelchair kids, it's an incredibly overwhelming sensory experience just for anyone. So, basically, Only Make Believe came from, well, why not bring the theatre to them? When my husband died, that's what I decided to do. And
5: Was his passing an impetus for doing it? Absolutely.
11: Very fiercely so, because I've grown very attached to a lot of the kids that one had worked with in the institutions or hospitals one volunteered, and... I was pretty devastated when Jamie died and didn't want those children not to get the affection and love and fun one had brought to them. So Only Make Believe was created to bring a group of actors to give them an hour of entertainment, participation, release. And I really had no idea, actually, what the structure was then. I just knew the sense that of bringing the plays to them. From the early experiences of the school plays, etc., it was really obvious that kids love to participate. And if they're having a good time and want to believe you're a fairy princess, even though you're a sullen whatever, they will. And so... I knew that kind of interaction with children in America they're not used to participating in theater so the idea of bringing that sense of English pantomime was the idea and and in the beginning it was more improvisational and then you realize no you need a beginning middle and end right yes you need an intuition so everybody can sort of have a release mm-hmm. and So basically, the kids teach you, really, what works best for them.
5: Only Make Believe is entering its 20th year, and so they have certainly found what works best for the kids that they reach each and every week with the actors. In much the same vein, New York Youth Symphony has been around more than 50 years, and Mike Repper is the current music director of the orchestra, and he talks about what got him into music directing and specifically conducting. Whenever he was eight years old, he went to Melbourne, Australia and studied with a piano teacher there. What
0: she did, as I said, was was really youth music education. And she used to do these concerts, these assembly concerts, where you would have the first graders come in or the second graders come in, third graders come in for an hour. She'd hire a little chamber orchestra. There'd be a little story and an actor. And it would be fun for the kids to sort of get them immersed in, in classical music. And, and, and were these
5: mostly from operas or or standalone classical pieces? Um,
0: so it would be a mix. Uh, so um, usually it would be about a specific composer. So okay. one month would be composer X and then composer Y, etc. Um, so I guess it would all depend on what that composer is and what she wanted to feature. And right. when I was there... Uh, was Meet Haydn Day. Um, that's that's what it was. And so she had had this little chamber orchestra, and there was a there was a an actor, like I said, with a little script and costumes, and it was supposed to be a cute forty five minute thing that wasn't all that serious, but it was supposed to just be fun for the kids. Yeah. And two or three minutes before the show was to start, the actor didn't show up, and so there she was with this chamber orchestra and the things. The kids are there, ready to go, and there's no actor, and so she turned to me. Um, and said, Hey Mike, you know, I was eight years old. She said, Hey Mike, how'd you like to dress up as Haydn and do the thing? (laughs) (laughs) And so there I was. And, and, and I should show you a picture of this, um, uh, in this ridiculous wig and long, you know, um, Uh, robe, you know, very, you know, 18th century style. And uh, I had the little script printed out and to conduct, they gave me a car antenna, you know, like a 1990s car antenna that, that expanded to, you know, so it was just fantastic. It was always, (laughs) it was basically as tall as I was actually part of, Haydn's responsibility um, was to give a little conducting performance of this chamber orchestra specifically Mm -hmm. of a piece called the surprise symphony that he wrote and the surprise symphony was written because in the second movement it starts very very quiet and then there's a a loud bang that's supposed to be a surprise to kind of wake up the audience because Haydn was a prankster but uh, because I had not ever been a conductor before, and I had not played in an orchestra before, and I was relatively ignorant of orchestral classical music at that point, it also was a surprise to me. I had no idea what was going to happen. <laughs> of course, the orchestra didn't need me to actually be conducting. Um, they could play it fine amongst themselves. So I was up there waving my arms, and then all of a sudden this thing comes, and then it's like, bang. <laughs> and, and, uh, and in that moment, it was very visceral, but in that moment, something hit me, and I don't know what it was, but I was like, this is so cool. And so um, was was there a little part of your eight year old self that thought I made that I did that. I I, I honestly don't know. I mean, maybe there was. But there was definitely something in that moment where I said, you know, this is just so cool. I'm right here in the middle of this music and it just sounds great. And and so when I moved back to the States, um, I was going into fourth grade. And so in California, where I'm from in the fourth grade is when you're expected to pick up an instrument, usually the violin or um, a string instrument or the recorder or something like that in the public school system and so i had already been playing the piano but i started playing the violin and as it goes my violin teacher was also a conductor and so i said uh hey you know could we dedicate the the last 10 minutes of our hour-long lesson to conducting uh, just I'm curious about it, you know? Yeah. And so we go and after a year and a half, you know, we're doing 20 minutes and 40 minutes and then a half hour and then, you know, five or six years later, it's just a full-on conducting lesson and I knew that it's exactly what I wanted to do.
5: And the students within the New York Youth Symphony certainly know that that is what they want to do, music. And that goes the same for two students within the Musical Theater Composition Program, they were so kind and gracious and talked with me about a new work that they had done in class and shared that work with us.
1: My name is Sydney Alpacker. I actually found out about this program through a friend. I have um, a few friends that are um, involved in various parts of New York Youth Symphony, and um, I'm very involved in the theater in my school, and I'm very passionate about musical theater in general. Um, and a few friends reached out to me saying, look, New York Youth Symphony has a new program, and it's right up your alley. You should definitely check it out. So... Um, I've had a blast so far, so
8: yeah. My name is Tate Robinson and uh, I found out about the program through my theater teacher. He's helping me, I'm doing an independent study with him just to learn about the different aspects of theater because I, I hadn't been too involved until very recently and he told me all about this program and how he'd actually gone to school with Mrs. Jacobs uh, and so he connected me with the program and now that I'm in it, it's just it's amazing for me.
1: This piece um, was part of an assignment where we learned about the A-A-B-A song format. Um, So we had a lecture and we learned about um, the different components of an A-A-B-A song, um, different examples of A-A-B-A songs, and a lot of things of that nature. And we were given an assignment um, based on a cartoon. We had to come up with our own A-A-B-A song. And um, that's where Tate, who who wrote the lyrics of the song, came in with a a lot of the ideas for what our piece is. So if you want to.
8: Yeah, so um, our prompts was a cartoon of a man who puts his burrito into a microwave and it's actually a time machine. Uh, So I took that very loosely, uh, having something perfect but you don't actually want it. So that was uh, sort of my inspiration for the first iteration of the lyrics. And then when I was showing it to people, um, a consistent piece of advice that I got was make it more specific or maybe make it about someone in particular that everyone knows. My idea of the context would be that JFK has just gotten... He's in the midst of everything that's going on with, with Russia and the Cold War and the things that are going on. And that's putting a huge stress on his, his family life and just the little small things in his life are being so heavily affected by these big things. And that's sort of tearing him apart when it comes to his relationship with Jackie. Obviously, we're never going to be able to find out exactly what went on uh, but in my mind that is what I think had a large part to do with it. And so that's what really drives him in this song to be with Marilyn and, and be with someone who's just so different and exotic compared to all the things that he has going on with him at the moment.
1: It's like a microanalysis of a moment that he might have had that we wanted to explore. Yeah. He said I had what I was supposed to. A fancy roof. Above above my head, a girl to keep me warm in bed.
5: was a joy to talk to these students, and I spoke to two others as well, and to see the, the passion and the just intensity and energy that they had for performing and composing in this particular case was really, really inspiring. And with all my guests, that's what I love to bring out in them, is not just the what are they doing, but why are they doing it. And I was particularly moved by one of the guests that I had on in episode 17, John McGinty. He's an actor who is deaf and was so open and honest about his experiences uh, being a deaf person, being a deaf actor, and all that that entails in his art. What would you say is the, as, as we wrap up here, what would you say is the best advice that you've received and how did you implement that in your life? I have learned
7: that sometimes you need to shit in the soil if you want to grow something, right? (laughs) I mean, sometimes your worst days are actually your best days. So when life is a mess and I go home or whatever and I'm feeling down, I say, you know what? I can learn something from this. I don't obsess about things because I don't want to have that that awful spiral that you can have. That
5: spiral is, is a killer. I've, I've been there myself.
7: Right. And not only that, but like as actors, when we go in and to auditions or go out to perform, we worry so much about what other people are thinking, what the people behind the table are thinking, what critics are thinking. You have to let go of that and trust yourself. Be truthful to yourself. If people don't like it, too bad. If you You need to bring your best self to everything you do.
5: And that gets back to something that other guests have talked about and that we've mentioned earlier in this retrospective episode about being yourself. And that's something that I, I certainly need to remind myself of and that I don't need to please this person or that person or what, what do you want? What, what, you know, how, how can I get the job? What, what do you need? Rather, be myself, bring what I bring to, to this art form that I love and that I have such passion for. And it gets hard, it gets hard, you know, why I'll never make it. That, that little voice that says, I'm not gonna make it is, it's a tough one to listen to and also to get rid of. And when it comes, all I can do is remind myself of why I'm still here, of what is that, what is that passion? What is that spark that is in me that keeps me going? And certainly one person that has that in spades is my good friend Chris Coyne. And he is someone who is always genuinely himself in everything that he does. And so I asked him, well, Chris, where do you see yourself in five years? What does Chris Coyne look like five years from now? (laughs) Older. (laughs) <laughs> no uh you know what
12: now that i'm a dad and i now i have a five month old baby so i honestly the first thing i think of is what he's gonna be like and for me i think i'm gonna be hopefully balanced more balanced with career and family and seeing and knowing you know what's really important in life and that, that at the end of the day it's gonna be my family you know, and I already feel that way. So, in five years, I hope that I'm I'm a kick-ass dad, and I hope that I am employed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, honestly, that if I could have those two things, I'm good. You know the basics, right? Just focus on what like what's actually important. Even though the, like your your audition is important, you know what I mean? Uh, it's it's almost impossible, though. I I think as an actor, like you just can't uh divorce yourself from that like it just becomes the number one priority you know because you're like okay i gotta go and this is a huge thing and this is a huge commercial this is a huge you know it's like coming at you so hardcore it's crazy so so anyway good luck with that i wish you all the best with that (laughs) good luck
5: (laughs) yes good luck and best wishes to us all here in 2019 Thank you once again, not only for joining me on this episode, but for joining me the entire year of the While Never Make It podcast. It really is for you that I do this. So, share with friends and family, anyone who you think could benefit from it, and I will do my darndest to make sure it is worthy of sharing. There's new blogs, new guests, new everything coming up for 2019. So follow me on the website WhileNeverMakeIt.com, and I will see you in the new year.